So in 2001, I had a catastrophic ski accident that changed my life forever. And I was told I would not be able to get back to medicine. But when I did get back in, I learned I was not the same person. I wasn't the same wife. I was now a patient. Uh, and I most definitely wasn't the same physician. So who was I? Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. I'm Dr. Nicole Deffenbaugh, clinical communications specialist and the host of the podcast series. And we are nearing the end of Health Stories, ending in early June. So we only have a few podcasts left. I'm delighted to be joined today with Dr. Lorraine Dickey. She is a physician and is going to be talking about traumatic brain injury. So welcome to the podcast, Lorraine. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Nicole. So um, you had talked about you had a traumatic injury a number of years ago and thought maybe we could um, start with that. So the story has gone through a lot of iterations over the years, but the best way to say it, I think, is uh, it was around St. Patrick's Day 2001 when I was skiing at a favorite ski place in uh, Colorado. We happened to live there at the time. And I was skiing with friends. My husband and my youngest son and I were skiing together and my other two children were skiing with friends. This was a morning when it was snowing a bit and I was on my way down one of the blue black slopes that I've done a hundred times. This day was a little different because it, because it was only my husband and my youngest son. My husband said, hey, why don't you ski first? I'm usually the one who skis cleanup and makes sure that the kids get picked up and my husband's the speed demon. So this day I said, great, that's, that sounds lovely. So I went down and somewhere at uh, the bottom of the hill, my left ski apparently caught an edge in a area that went from packed powder to powder. And the visibility was kind of fair, it was snowing a bit. And the last thing I truly, truly remember is my left leg being up in the air. Apparently then I fell on the back of my head and then somehow turned around and hit the front of my head. I did have a helmet on. This was back uh, in the day where one of the Kennedy kids had died on the Colorado slopes and Sonny Bono had died on the, on the slopes around this time, around 2000. So we made sure we had helmets for our kids and uh, we got really good ones for my husband and I. And having had the helmet on probably saved my life, but it didn't save me from having a very uh, serious head injury. I got up and a lot of what I'm going to tell you now is what has been relayed to me by friends. I have a gap in my memory uh, probably close to two months. And uh, I got up and I was going to ski 
I was going to walk up to catch the gondola down with a friend. The only thing I really noticed was I had a horrendous headache and the insides of my wrists uh, were on fire, like someone was just lighting them up with a blowtorch. So when I got up to get on the gondola, they asked, why do you want to ride down? And I said, because I fell and I have a headache and my wrists are on fire. And they said, well, probably not a good idea. So they bundled me up and took me down the slope into the medical facility. And in the medical facility, they came to the conclusion that I probably had a cervical spine injury. And the weather was not the best, so they couldn't helicopter air or air ambulance me anywhere. They just bundled me up into a, an ambulance and got me to a local hospital. And from there, uh, diagnoses were made. Uh, it turned out that I had a narrowing in my cervical spine that was uh, undiagnosed. So prior when, to the accident. Prior to the accident. So when I hit um, the my cervical spine started to swell, but there was no place for it to swell, and that's called cervical. That's called um, central cord syndrome, and it can be quite devastating. Uh, I also apparently had a knee ax knee injury. The biggest thing I think they were concerned about was my neck injury. Uh, my husband talks about seeing me for the first time in the neuro ICU trying to eat, uh, saying you looked very much like you had cerebral palsy. You simply couldn't hold on to things and make it go where you wanted it to go. Mm. And I think for him, one of the most difficult things was they didn't realize the extent of the injury up front. Um, they said, we don't know how much is going to get better and how much we'll have to recover over time. So I spent about a week, I think, in the neuro ICU. And then I spent about another week or 10 days in rehab. And in rehab, we started to figure out, this is another funny story, figure out how bad the head injury was. They were asking me to explain some common sayings. Hmm. Uh, the, the therapist came in and uh, said, so Lorraine, why don't you tell me what it would mean if it were raining cats and dogs? And I said, you know, without even pause, I said, well, you know, I have cats and I have dogs. And we have this place up on top of our garage that's kind of flat. So if I took the cats and dogs up there and threw them off, it would be raining cats and dogs. Oh, wow. And a friend of mine who was sitting next to the therapist, they both looked at each other and the therapist wrote, yikes, with mm. a big exclamation point on the end of it. Mm. My friend couldn't tell if it was just my sense of humor or if truly there was a problem. It came to find out that there was truly a problem. Um, what happens with head injury, 
you tend to be very concrete. So abstraction is hard. Uh, and for a physician who lives in the world of abstraction, uh, all of a sudden I was not talking, not making sense in ways that I had before. Um, they, it, I was on a lot of um, narcotic medication. They fixed my neck, I want to say four to six weeks after uh, the accident. And um, once they got my neck stabilized, they were able to get me off of the narcotics. Mm. That was when they found out that the extent of the injury. Mm. They, that's when they started to realize how much I didn't remember, how much I wasn't remembering going forward. And that's when they, they saw how much my speech had changed. Um, they started to do a little more digging and uh, my visual memory was gone. A visual memory is what you use daily a lot. Like when you go out of the house and you say, I forgot my keys, you close your eyes mm -hmm. and you kind of can backtrack and see where you went mm -hmm. and find them. My that was gone. Um, and dreaming, which is linked to visual memory, was gone. My ability to read was gone because a lot of it was because I could not get my eyes to track straight across a page. Mm -hmm. They would track downward. And I couldn't walk. It wasn't so much the neck injury. It was my balance was really out of whack. Um, shortly after I got home, my husband, I was trying to walk behind my husband to get into the store. And he went straight into the store and I somehow thought I was going right behind him and turned out to be like walking 45 degrees the opposite way. Mm -hmm. um, and he had to come get me. <laughs> so that took, uh, that took um, a long time. They initially thought I would be able to get back to work in about three months, mm -hmm. given the degree of the neck injury itself. After they, they had to remove some discs and open up the, the cervical spine area and then put in some hardware. They thought that was about three months. How, did you have surgery? I'm sorry. Yes, I had surgery. Yeah, I had a neurosurgeon totally kind of rebuild my mid-cervical neck. Oh. C3, C4, C5 is all rebuilt. And uh, after that, we started to, uh, I met with a neuropsychologist and we started to figure out exactly what was hurt and what wasn't hurt. The good thing was, you know, uh, the neuropsychologist said, it's not your frontal lobes that got hurt because that's the number one reason physicians or people who are in high executive positions can't return to work because that's where personality is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that gets in the way of being able to function, again, as part of the team. Um, my injuries were more on the right temporal parietal side and uh, had a lot to do with language. I still to this day have some issues, especially under stressful circumstances. I can look like right at you and, and say, that is a really beautiful yellow blouse, no, purple. Um, things like uh, 
going to Rita's. This is a common thing that happens, and it's, it's, I mean, we've gotten to where we sort of laugh at it, but my husband says, what would you like at Rita's? And I would just say, uh, I would like a red and brown. Um, well, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not red and brown, it's cherry with chocolate ice cream. But the only thing that comes to my head is red and brown. Yeah, it's, it's, at times you can be just a little more concrete, yeah. you know, so it takes a little time. So I want to, um, so f- f- first, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing this story. Um, I can only imagine how challenging it can be to mm-hmm. tell it and mm-hmm. relive it and, and remember all of that. Um, so thank you. And for the listeners who are listening as well, who may have mm-hmm. had their own traumatic um, head injury. So one of the things I, mm-hmm. I want to dig into um, is being a clinician mm-hmm. uh, and being a patient. So first, what was it like being a clinician? You said you were they expected that you would return within three months. Mm-hmm. So what was that like returning? Because that was your, your opening question right mm-hmm. in the very beginning mm-hmm. of, of returning. Right, uh, right, who, who am I? Yeah, the, initially, um, the three month period passed and uh, from an executive function standpoint, uh, the rehabilitation could only get to me, get me about 80% back to what I needed. So there were some alternate therapies that we were sort of doing. And it would take more time. The other thing I wasn't really sure of was how the degree to which the brain continues to regenerate as an adult. That was something I wasn't aware of. So we weren't sure how much we could sort of get back. So getting back, so to speak, um, was a challenge. Uh, essentially, I did some testing at 18 months after the accident with an independent neuropsychologist who said, uh, this testing does not look good. It looks uh, like I would not recommend you return to being a physician. And I remember my husband and I sitting in this uh, psychologist's office and All I could do was tap dance and tap dance and say, hey, wait about this, what about this, what about this? And the good thing about the work I do in in an intensive care unit, we work as a team. We work as a team. I don't have to see 30 patients a day as an independent um, outpatient physician. So because of that, um, we actually got him to write the letter, the recommendation saying, not recommended to return now. However, there may be a possibility if further rehabilitation continues. And that's kind of a questionable thing because most people are at, at that time felt at the 12 to 18 month mark, what you got back is all you're gonna get back. Mm-hmm. I think one of the hardest things has at that time was having something that you have spent so much time and you've been groomed for and you've been told you're so good and and the patients have said you're good and and you've given up so much of my family life and my time with my husband to become this uh, physician moving in a direction of being a director to have it all taken away from me and having no control in that at all that was that was, I think, one of the hardest things to get my head around. And probably really the solitary motivation for saying, no, I, I don't think I want it taken away from me like that. So 
I really wanted to leave medicine on my own terms. Even if I could get back in some capacity, then I could have peace with it and I could move on. So um, I did some rehabilitation stuff with my uh, group who were kind enough to, to, to help me with that. They held my job for 18 months. And then they finally said, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to fill the job. And at that time, I lost my job. I lost my health insurance. Mm. I was a lot of money and a lot of problems um, at that time. So I literally, truly at that time became Mrs. Dickey. I mean, the whole neighborhood called me Mrs. Dickey. Everybody called me Mrs. Dickey pretty much. That's who I became. So no longer a doctor. I was no longer a doctor. I would say right about that 12 to 18 month point when it became very obvious I probably wasn't going to return to medicine, that I really became somebody else. And it wasn't that I didn't want to be that, it just felt like so much had been taken away from me. I mean, I was proud to be my, you know, my husband's wife and, 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 I, and I love my kids, but it was not in my head the primary identity that I had. Yeah. Um, so that part I was trying to really grapple with and try to come back to. How do I get some of that identity back? So how many months after your accident did you end up getting back into medicine? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. And I had a, and that was the consulting job I did for four months, and then I came back in. And what was that like when you were a clinician again? It was um, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Because I was... um, outwardly just like you nobody can see a head injury and I I have heard other people talk about this too that's one of the most devastating parts of it Um, I didn't want to be defined by my head injury but I had had to be because it limited the way that I all the rehab that I had for years. It limited my, I had to learn to, to walk, I had to learn to read, I had to learn to do things around my house. I had a walker for many months. I had, um, you know, I couldn't read like I had done before. Things that I used to enjoy, like putting puzzles together, were absolute torture. Uh, but I would try to do them anyway. Trying to get back into medicine as a physician where people look at you. And I think my biggest problem was I was absolutely, totally terrified of making a mistake. Mm -hmm. Because if I made a mistake, was it really just a simple medical error? Or was it because I have this lingering uh, head injury um, trauma? how I now think about the people I'm taking care of. Mm-hmm. I learned that it is a true privilege to stand with people at the time, at times of their greatest crisis and at times of their greatest joys. I don't think I appreciated that enough before I fell off that mountain. Uh, the degree of suffering that patients go through is also a lot like a head injury head injury and the fact that you just can't see it Mm -hmm. you have to ask about it i've learned that when you diagnose 
a person with a head injury, you diagnose a family with a head injury. So when I use this in my work, if we diagnose a baby with prematurity, we've diagnosed a family with prematurity. When I was diagnosed with cancer a few years after this, my whole family was diagnosed with cancer. So what really, when I came to the Lehigh Valley and started working here, I definitely had a different bent about how to take care of people. I, I really learned that it's the technical care is good and, and, and people expect technical care to be good. Um, but walking away from an experience feeling cared for, that was what I wanted to start providing my patients and families. And so I'm thinking, because it's great that you're getting into the mm -hmm. um, patient part. Mm -hmm. um, before we move to that a little bit mm -hmm. more, what advice would you have for other clinicians who are listening in that I can imagine people who are listening have had their own experiences and illnesses and disorders, and they're trying to figure out how do I continue practicing medicine mm -hmm. and um, be vulnerable to the differences that have occurred and work with other people and trust them and trust myself. What I learned coming back and advice I would give to people is something that my friends have told me all along that I didn't know is that you were so much more than um, this, than the sum of your academic um, accolades. But when you are trained and um, you're in a world that values this very high achieving persona, when that falls away and you try to find out who you are afterward, um, it's really hard. So I guess my advice is do what you have to do to feel you can leave the profession or whatever work you're in on your own terms. And if you can, that's great. And if you can't, it's a hard way to learn that there are other things out there but there are other things out there. There really are. And that they are just as valuable. Uh, I think physicians, we are in a very special world about what is important to us uh, on a day in, day out work environment. And we give up a lot in order to take care of people and this is the choice we make. Having the shoe on the other foot where you're dependent upon people taking care of you is very humbling. Tell me, tell me about yeah. that. So, for the those of mm -hmm. the people mm -hmm. who are listening, mm -hmm. what was it like? Because mm -hmm. I'm assuming you were a patient a lot, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. roles were really reversed, where you were taking mm -hmm. care of people, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, literally overnight, you have mm -hmm. this traumatic brain injury, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, you went two and a half years before mm -hmm. you even returned. Mm -hmm. You know, what was that like being a patient? Are there any um, moments that stand out for you? This one um, nurse who happened to be on that day, and it was it was the day to give uh, Lorraine a shower. Um, I'm a fairly private person, and even in that setting, I wasn't terribly anxious about having to hop into the shower with someone. 
But at this time, I couldn't even get myself out of bed. I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk right. My arms didn't work right. My whole left side didn't work much at all. Um, but they got me in the shower. They got me undressed. Or she did, I should say. She got me undressed. And literally, I was trying to say something. I'm sure she was trying to understand it. But she made me feel comfortable. Um, she made me feel understood. I know that I was um, crying my eyes out because when you're naked and more than vulnerable um, in a hospital shower with someone you don't know um, and your arms aren't working and it doesn't, nothing is really making sense, the kindness and compassion that person showed me by helping my arms move by helping me sit down and by just holding me and letting me sob in the shower um, is something um, I, that's just burned into my memory. I mean, I get tears about it right now thinking about it because it was so, it was so human. And it, I look back on these experiences like this and it's like, well, that's what it's all about. It's not about being a doctor, even though I was groomed and primed in, in that identity. It's not about even being a patient. It's about human interaction. And when you have to have these things done for you, people who can do it and allow you to maintain uh, your dignity are priceless and I've, I've learned that I want that experience for everybody else who has to go through that. There are so many high-performing very competent people out there. People don't come to the healthcare system unless they're in need, unless they're suffering and I don't think there is any other way I can describe my situation or the way I felt at that time in the shower than suffering. I truly was no longer feeling like a whole person. And letting someone, you don't have a choice really. It's not that I let her give me showers that she had to do that, but she did it in a way that allowed me to say, um, yes, it's okay. It's okay. It was a kindness done for me um, and not to me. How's that? Mm -hmm. I think it left me indelibly changed on a human level that that is what care is about. And that's what we in the profession should be doing is providing these experiences that people have where they feel cared for. I'm sure I had a thousand tests and I had more doctors in my room and more nurses and physical therapists and, and, and neuropsychologists and you name it. I, I had a bunch of stuff. But the one experience that really reigns true was um, just being treated like a human being. Uh, with dignity. How has everything you've gone through changed the way that you practice now? And 
And the other part of that question is, are you a different doctor than you were before the accident? Wow. Um, the, let me answer the second question first. Um, I am most definitely a different doctor than I am now, or than I was. And, and it's funny because there's almost like this line in the sand, if you will, of the accident and then the people who have known me after I've recovered versus people who knew me before. My husband and family are probably the only people who have seen the continuum of that. Um, I think I'm different in the fact that I, I no longer want to simply put, you know, be a really, really good technician. And in the intensive care unit, especially the nursery intensive care unit, is a lot about diagnosis. It's a lot about that. I am much more interested in, in having these experiences that people can walk away from and they can live with no matter what the outcome is. I think the, the biggest thing that changed for me is I've, I used to be very much about outcomes. I think I'm now very much about process. Mm -hmm. If the process works, then people can live with whatever the outcomes are because we all know that bad outcomes can happen. But it's that process of care, that process of recognition of, of your humanity and my humanity and that we're trying and we're, we, and we're trying to do kindness to each other um, that allows us to live with whatever outcomes actually happen down the road. Yeah. So I think that's where I am a profoundly different physician. Um, it's about process. You know, and, and listening to you um, as a, a patient, I wish all my physicians <laughs> said what you said. <laughs> to stay, I mean, not, not that I would want anybody to have such a traumatic event, uh -huh. but for you to come out the other side and say, as a result of this, you sound empathic uh -huh. and understanding, uh -huh. and you're talking about the humanness, and you're talking about kindness to each other, and isn't that what we all want? from the people that treat us in the healthcare system. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. beautiful. I just think that fundamentally, those of us who work in healthcare really need to know that, that people come to us because they cannot do something for themselves yeah. and that they suffer. And it doesn't have to be suffering in my book and it doesn't have to be, I mean, maybe this is something that I think you can do for yourself. But I think it's really stopping listening with an open mind or an open heart, however you want to say it, and trying to find what that person identifies as being cared for and then delivering that. Because then I think we fundamentally walk away with a healthcare experience that providers want to give and patients, although they do not want to be there, are able to receive. I wondered, since mm -hmm. we're at time, mm -hmm. um, the last thing I would like mm -hmm. you to um, tell our listeners is about the gathering of kindness, since you mentioned kindness. Mm -hmm. um, and you're the uh, owner of Narrative Initiative, so mm -hmm. um, also in addition to being a clinician, also mm -hmm. owner of a company. So I wonder if you could um, share very briefly with the listeners mm -hmm. what the Gathering of Kindness is and mm -hmm. when it is and where it is. 
Well, thank you for asking. That's just that's just very sweet. The gathering of kindness is um, one of the projects we have at the Narrative Initiative that uh, that specifically addresses perspectives about what it means to be kind and barriers to kindness. In healthcare, right? In healthcare. This yeah. particular one happens to be in healthcare. The Gathering of Kindness USA is also about it's about it's the subtitle is transforming the culture of healthcare through kindness. Um, and this year we are um, not only providing a narrative kindness experience like we did last year, we are also bringing in a healthcare play that you happen to be involved with as well that will look at medical error in a number of different from a number of different perspectives so the audience which is a combination of community members and medical providers can come together and explore some of those um, some of those perspectives when something terrible happens and someone dies in that, uh, from a medical error and then the narrative around the narrative process or experiences that we offer allow patients, family members, and healthcare providers to come together under one umbrella, one roof in the same room to share personal stories about challenges to kindness in the patient uh, provider or clinician relationship. It's going to be on Friday, May 31st at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, registration starts at 8 a.m. The conference will be from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. And for more information where they can... More information, you can uh, go to www.thenarrativeinitiative. I know that's a terrible and long word, <laughs> but it's The Narrative Initiative, I-N-I-T-I-A-T-I-V-E. Com. Um, or you can Google the Narrative Initiative and it'll pop up and send you to our website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's an absolute honor. Thank you for listening to my story. Yes. And thank you to our listeners as well. We are nearing the end of our series here with the Health Stories podcast. We have a few more to go, so please stay tuned. You can like us on Facebook, leave a message on nicoledeffenbaugh.com slash blog, and we're on Twitter at Stories Health. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh for Health Stories.